0: Praise the Lord. Amen. 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 What a wonderful time of worship this morning. Thank you, music team. And thank you, Cameron, for praying. Uh, I would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 8. We'll continue our worship as we read from 9 to 31. Excuse me, 9 through 24. Acts chapter 8 verses 9 through 24, and if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We stand out of reverence for the Word of the Lord, and this is God's Word. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Uh, The title for this message this morning is Simon Says, but is Simon Saved? And I'd like to, right here at the beginning of our time together, have you ask yourselves, why is this account of Simon, why is this testimony of Simon in this account of the early church? Why did Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, feel it necessary to put this account into this second letter to Theophilus? Uh, There was obviously some specific purpose for including it, so what's it here for? Uh, The text before us this morning has caused no small dissension throughout the centuries and continues to do so even among modern uh, theologians and scholars. It's a a text that seems to take the wind out of the sails of what up to this point in this chapter has been very positive, has been very encouraging, for lack of better terms, right? We were on such a, a great path last week. We saw propagation through persecution. The gospel was spreading, even amidst affliction. You cut off the head of the gospel, two more grow in its place. You try to stamp out the embers of the gospel, the sparks of the good news fly into the air and start even more uncontrollable, uncontainable fires which rage throughout the nations. This is good stuff. I like this. But now Simon Magus comes along and we have to sit here and discuss the legitimacy and the the genuineness of his salvation. Why does this have to happen, Luke? Luke? Why can't we just stay in the positive and and encouraging zone? Why not just tell of the triumphs and the successes of the early church? Why are you dragging us down? Well, because everyone who has been in the Christian faith for any extended period of time, the true Christian faith, that is, knows that the Christian life and life in the church isn't always positive and encouraging. That's a myth. That's a fable. That's a facade. It's not reality. And the scriptures don't deal in myths. The scriptures deal in reality. They operate in truth. I would love to come in here Sunday after Sunday and just tell you guys to shoot for the stars or or tell you that you can accomplish anything that you put your minds to, Uh, to tell you that your family will always be healthy and always be happy, that you'll never have any trials and tribulations. I'd love to just come in here each week and pump you up and tell you how great it is to be a Christian. But when you preach expositionally through the text, through the scriptures, which we are absolutely 100% committed to do as long as this church operates under these elders, when you preach expositionally through the text, it's not me in my little office trying to hatch some cookie cutter e- inspirational message with three points and an application. It's just us saying, here is what God says through his text. Take it or leave it. This is what uh, the text says. The text dictates the message. The text dictates the tone. The text dictates what we will talk about. Highs and lows, ebbs and flows. That's the way the scriptures go. In chapter 1, Christ gives the disciples a mighty charge and prophecy. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What a great commission. Then they're hit with the reality of having to replace the disciple who betrayed the Lord and delivered him over to the hands of lawless men. They received the promised Holy Spirit in chapter 2 amidst great signs and wonders. They're marveling at what has taken place. Then people start to mock them and call them drunkards. The church was all together and in one accord, devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and prayer. They're healing lame beggars. They're preaching the good news of Christ in the temple. Then they're threatened by the religious authorities and told to knock it off or else. The believers are once again united, praying for boldness. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Things seemed to be going so well. Then Ananias and Sapphira come on the scene. They lie to the Holy Spirit and are killed by God right there at the feet of the Apostle Peter. Next scene. Many miracles and wonders are being performed by the Apostles. They're right back there in Solomon's portico, boldly declaring the message with accompanying miracles, which affirmed the message. People are hearing the good news. They are being faithful to the commands of the Lord. Next thing you know, they are seized, imprisoned, accosted, now beaten for speaking on the name of Christ. Chapter 6. Spirit-filled godly men are appointed to oversee the distribution of bread to the Hellenist widows. Luke says the word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests even became obedient to the faith the priests. Stephen is seized. He gives a Holy Spirit-inspired sermon in front of the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious authorities in Jerusalem. And just when you think this could be the moment when the nation repents, all of Israel will be saved. Just when you think the kingdom on earth could come, they drag Stephen outside and stone him to death. Great persecution comes to the believer's In Jerusalem, headed up by a man named Saul who is ravaging and continuing to ravage over and over the church. But it doesn't have its intended effect. The gospel spreads through that persecution and even to the once despised Samaritans. Uh, People are listening. People are hearing the good news. People are believing the good news. Luke says they're even being baptized. And then Simon, the sorcerer, comes along, makes a false profession, and has the audacity to ask the apostles if he can buy the Holy Spirit like some gimmick on the shelf of a magic store. Only to have Peter then look at him, look at him and say, To hell with you and your money. Next week, we move on to the account of the Holy Spirit sending Philip to an Ethiopian man who will hear the word. He'll also be baptized. The gospel going to the ends of the earth, just like Jesus said. Ups, downs, ebbs, flows. That's the way the scripture goes. Why? Because that's real. That's reality. That's life on this cursed earth. That's life in a nation under corrupt leaders. That's relationship with unbelievers. That's life in how we deal with them. That's life in the church. That's life in our marriages. That's life in individual battles with sin. That's real. It's not sugar-coated. It's not fabricated. It's not life in denial. It's not fake. It's real life. Uh, so I believe that before us this morning, the text before us here, I believe this is a mercy of the Lord. I believe this is a gracious gift from our Lord, an instruction from our Lord to say, don't be like Simon, who is a mere professor. As has been said, don't be a mere professor, be a true possessor. Keep that in mind as we walk through this text today. This is a grace of the Lord and a warning from your creator to not find yourself in the same position as this man. This man whom Luke introduces to us in verse 9, he says, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Here's the account of this impressive man, Simon. Again, some have called him Simon Magus, magus being the transliteration of the word magos, meaning sorcerer, magician or sorcerer, great sorcerer. He was a practitioner of the dark arts. He was a performer of magical spells. Uh, Magical spells which harness occult evil forces and spirits to produce unnatural or supernatural effects in the world. The Bible is not shy about mentioning such practices throughout either the Old or New Testament and the Bible is not shy about condemning such practices throughout both the Old and New Testaments. We are told that Sorcery and necromancy, witchcraft, other forms of magic have been around since the earliest days. Of course, remember uh, Moses and Pharaoh and Pharaoh's magicians, who were able to produce similar supernatural phenomena as Moses by turning their staff, uh, staffs into snakes, by turning the water of the Nile into blood, by uh, making the frogs multiply. Uh, And these types of practices would continue to be prevalent throughout the ages, including to a time that hasn't even happened yet. The Apostle John even tells us in the Revelation that near the beginning of the Great Tribulation period, after various judgments are poured out from heaven, the people will still not repent of their murders or their sorceries, their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Demonology um, sorcery, b- black magic, witchcraft, they're just a part of living in a fallen world system. It's just a part uh, of life. And, and Simon Magus was among one of history's biggest proponents of it. Uh, Luke says that Simon had been practicing magic in the city and had apparently impressed quite a few people. Verse 10 says, From the least to the greatest, the people said this man is the power of God that is called Great. Simon Magus was called great by the people of this city and was worshipped as a deity. And Justin Martyr said Simon's birthplace was in the land of Samaria and he had lived there all of his life and he had kept the people long under satanic bondage. And these people believed Simon Magus' words. They believed his miracles as well. They believed, him so, they believed in him so much that uh, Justin Martyr go going to say he was so famous that he was honored with a statue in Rome. And the statue said, Simon Sancti Deo, meaning to Simon, Holy God. Why did they say he was great? Well, first, because he told them he was great. That's what Luke says in verse 9. And he was able to pull off a few magic tricks, not sleight of hand, uh, but actual sorcery through the power of Satan, all while calling himself great. And the people, they just lapped it up. They just loved it. Again, showing for us that the modern-day charismatic health, wealth, and prosperity supposed miracle-driven word-faith movement is nothing new. You see, Simon drew great crowds. He had a great reputation. By the way, this is why uh, we can never be concerned or consumed with the number of people who attend services here on Sunday morning. Drawing a crowd is fairly easy if you just tell folks what they want to hear, yeah. and you just show folks what they want to see. You know, any I'm tempted to think about how many people show up here on Sunday mornings, I'm reminded of a video I saw of a healing crusade from Joyce Meyer Ministries back in 1998. This place was chocked full of people. Okay, they were exceeding the capacity limits in this building, no doubt. And to make it worse, they were all jumping around and flailing about. It was really quite the sight. And it all appeals to the flesh, of course. It's all feeling driven. Then Meyer comes out at the tail end of the crusade to lavish applause. And people are, are fainting in her presence, and she starts speaking in tongues, shamalakalaki. You notice it always includes shamalak? I don't know what that is. Or a brrrr, I don't know. She's, gra- she's grabbing her stomach, she's laughing hysterically, and the packed crowd is just loving it. They're eating it up. They can't get enough. This is what Simon was like. This is Simon Magus in Samaria. People loved him. Simon Magus is the main attraction, and he calls himself great. He pumps himself up. He pumps the crowds up with some little tricks and supernatural wonders. So they all think he's someone great, maybe even a gift from God himself, who, again, they believed in. Remember, the the Samaritans, they they believed in the one true God of Israel. Israel. Uh, but because they had some history with mixing in with Gentiles in the return from the Assyrian captivity, sorcery like, like this, even idol worship, mixed into their understanding of divine truth. This was not uncommon. So they said he was great. They said he was from God. And Luke says in verse 11, and they paid attention to him uh, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic like moths to a flame they came. So Simon is likely up to his usual antics in the city until one day something happens, something truly amazing happens. The people in this city, including Simon, begin to see real signs and and real wonders from heaven. Message authenticating, sermon validating, divine miracles and wonders take place. And remember uh, verse 7, for Unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. This is no uh, run-of-the-mill staff into snakes miracle here. These were no frog multiplying, pulling a rabbit out of the hat magic trick. Here was this man, Philip, this Hellenistic Jew, scattered by persecution, coming into this place, casting out the very demons that Simon Magus likely invited into the hearts of people, with his sorcery and witchcraft. Here was Philip casting out demons, healing these physical ailments of men and women, actually healing them. Not not the backaches, not the hearing issues, not the arthritis that you see on TBN, but major healings, undeniable healings. Many who were lame, Paralyzed, were healed instantly. Uh, but again, in the scriptures, the miracles are simply the authenticators of the message. The miracles weren't what converted people, they just allowed people to say, Wow, we better pay attention to what this guy is saying. Is that tongues I hear back? <laughs> I'm telling you. Hey, if I'm wrong. <laughs> oh. always remember uh, true conversion comes not by believing in accompanying signs uh, but through the power of the word of God the signs are, signs are charged with validating yeah. Luke says in verse 12 but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ they were baptized both men and women here Here's a group of people who, at this point, were making professions of belief. You understand what I'm saying? At this point, they were just professors of belief in the gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, and they were baptized immediately, full submersion, water baptism, assumed declaring their belief in Christ, but. At this point, they were not saved. Belief does not precede regeneration. Regeneration precedes or comes before true saving faith. And this section as a whole, not just standalone phrases and verses, but the section as a whole is a marvelous proof text for this very thing. Uh, Martin Luther said, justification is by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. Then he went on to say, the faith that justifies is a living faith, a faith that is alive. So let me ask you, where does that living and saving faith come from? It doesn't come from ourselves. Uh, We are spiritually bankrupt in our natural condition. We're totally depraved. Paul says we are dead in our trespasses and sins? Dead. Uh, how can a, a dead man conjure up faith? H- how can a spiritually bankrupt man or woman then all of a sudden have spiritual discernment? Well, the answer is that we are born again. We are born naturally, but born sinners, therefore we are dead. We're dead, so we must be born again. And faith is not an act of our will independently, but as has been said, it is the fruit of God's sovereign act of changing the disposition of our hearts and giving to us the gift of faith. Uh, These people in Samaria had an intellectual assent to what was being said here. They they believed in the message and the miracles, but guess what? They believed in Simon Magus' message as well. And they believed in his miracles as well, didn't they? They believed their eyes, they believed their ears, but they were not yet born again in their heart because they did not yet have the Spirit of God. Again, again, we have to keep reading here. Uh, here, Here's the so-called controversial text in verse 13. Luke says, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So here's this sorcerer, this uh, magician, this practitioner of dark arts, this con artist who Philip sees come into town, or who sees Philip come into town and says, holy smokes, these are are real miracles here. These are miracles that are actually benefiting the hearers. Uh, Simon, of all people, knew a legit practical miracle from the heavens above when he saw them, because they were not like the miracles that he was used to performing. And so now that he sees the real thing, the text says that he believed. Now, this is where many people would say, well, there you go. Simon Magus is a born-again believer. He was converted right then and there. Praise the Lord, right? Is that what you'd say? He believed. He saved. So all we have to do is believe, right? Well, not only did he believe, but he was even baptized. And Our Baptist friends are frothing at the mouth right now. Get him on the tally of converted souls. Luke says it right here, verse 13. Even Simon himself believed. But I don't see anywhere in this 13th verse where Luke says what Simon believed in. Do you? Now, in context, it would certainly appear to be saying that he believed in the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. But is this what Simon believed? Or did he believe in the miracles? Or did he believe Philip was a man sent from God? Or did he believe this phenomenon that had taken place? Or did he believe in the emotional response that was no doubt being displayed here? Or did he actually believe this message? That's what it looks like to me. But again, we have to keep reading. Now this is key here. Verse 14 point 4 in your outline. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The apostles came down from Jerusalem. This is estimated to be about a 22-hour walk straight through uh, but to Samaria. But again, we don't know which city, which little village they were in in Samaria, so it's hard to say. But it means that a full day at least had passed before the, pro, uh, the profession of belief and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Uh, much time has passed. Luke says... The Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on these men and women. The apostles had to come down from Jerusalem to confirm that these Samaritans, who we talked about last week, these men and women who who were despised by the Judean Jews, were actually hearing the message that Philip was proclaiming. But the Holy Spirit had not been sent yet. We can clearly see that. Uh, Verse 15. They were professing believers. They were baptized in the name of Jesus. Uh, The folks in Samaria here made professions and the evangelist Philip baptized them based on their professions. But they weren't truly born again until after the apostles came down from Jerusalem to see what was going on. And in verse 17, laid hands on them. At which time, Luke says, the Holy Spirit came down. At which time, They received the Holy Spirit of God. That's just what it says. That's just what the text says. In verse 16, they were professors. In verse 17, they were possessors. Man or woman is not saved by their belief in Christ unless they have the Spirit of Christ, who is sent from the resurrected Christ, dwelling on the inside of them, causing them to be born again, quickening their hearts to receive a true saving faith which goes beyond a mere intellectual assent that Jesus is Messiah. The Spirit of God regenerates a person. It happens whenever and however God has predetermined it to happen from before the foundations of the earth. Now again, I believe what happens in verse 18 to the end of the chapter as we keep reading will only confirm what we've been saying in our time together so far. But quickly, I want us to recognize two things that were at work here uh, in this, on this day in Samaria. Number one, the Word of God. Number two, the Spirit of God. Okay? It's been rightly said, as the Father is the ultimate agent of regeneration and the Spirit is the efficient cause of regeneration... Scripture identifies the word of God itself, specifically the gospel message, as the instrumental cause or means of regeneration. The Father's will is the ultimate cause of our new birth, but he has accomplished this miracle by means of the word of truth. Peter says to the children of God uh, that the children of God have been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Then two verses later, he identifies this living and abiding word of God as the good news that was preached to you. Paul says the same thing, that God's effectual call into regeneration is accomplished through our gospel. Word. Thus it is by the means of the preached gospel that the Spirit of God powerfully works to open the eyes of our hearts to the glory of Christ. Quote, To be clear, the external call is not efficacious in itself, though the preached gospel is the means of regeneration. It is not efficacious, in other words, it's not effective unless it is united with the Spirit's work in the internal call. Okay, that's what's happening here in Acts chapter 8. They heard the word. In an instrumental, absolutely necessary means of salvation, but it was not effective until the Spirit came, causing them to be regenerated, giving them the ability to truly believe and truly experience saving faith. The Word is preached, the Gospel is preached and heard externally. The Spirit works, He regenerates, He rebirths, He changes the heart internally. He, he opens the eyes. He uh, gives people the ability to truly understand what is being proclaimed here. Spirit. Where was Simon Magus in all this? That's the question. Uh, we knew some were at the moment of the apostles laying on of hands were, were indwelled with the Holy Spirit of God. Praise the Lord. But what about Simon. What about Simon Magus? What was the position of his heart? Other than this supposed intellectual assent to the message of Jesus as the Christ. Well, I say again, keep reading. Verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Two things that stand out to me here in verses 18 and 19. Number one, Luke says that Simon saw that the Spirit was given. What did he see? Did he see flaming tongues of fire? Did he see something like a dove descending? I don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. Some folks say, well, Simon must have heard them speaking in tongues as evidence, like we'll see in chapter 10, and like we saw in chapter 2. But Luke doesn't say Simon heard. He says Simon saw. So what did Simon see? I don't know. I'd like to know, but I don't know. It just doesn't tell us. I do know that whatever it was, he wanted to be able to possess it. Look at the second interesting thing in verse 19. When he saw that the Spirit was given through the apostles laying their hands on people, notice, he did not ask to to possess the Spirit himself, but rather he asked for the power to be able to give the Holy Spirit to whomever he laid his hands upon. This is key to me. It's obvious he was focusing on the miracles He he was focusing on the method, the laying on of hands. He wasn't focusing on the message. He wasn't ensuring that he too was indwelled by the Holy Spirit as were the other men and women. He he wanted the power of miracle working through outward manifestation, not the power of the miracle working uh, of the Holy Spirit through inward regeneration. He wasn't concerned with that. Uh, Do you see that there in verse 19? What he's asking for? Well, Peter recognized this. Peter saw right through him. And watch what he says in verse 20. Brace yourselves now. This is one of those hard realities. I don't think you're going to hear this on Caleb today. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You know what this literally reads? Your silver be with you in perdition. Remember when Jesus called Judas the son of perdition? the son of eternal torment, the son of hell. Here uh, in verse 20, Peter said to Simon Magus, to hell with you and your money. Here in verse 20, we see Simon Peter in true fisherman form saying to Simon Magus, "Simon Simon Magus, go to hell. Talk about an awkward moment. Talk about the theological equivalent of a cold shower. Uh, Things seem to be going so well. But Peter doesn't hesitate for a moment. Uh, He has a righteous indignation toward this false believer and con artist. If that wasn't enough, verse 21 is even more telling of the false conversion of Simon Magus. As Peter says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, For your heart is not right before God. And there you have it. From the lips of Peter himself, what was the condition of Simon's heart before God? Not right. Not righteous. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. He's still in bondage. He's still a slave to his original sin nature. He's in bondage to iniquity. The apostle uh, Peter could see that Simon was an unregenerate man, simply playing the part, simply professing or acknowledging the facts about Jesus Christ. Saying the words, but lacking the main component, the very Holy Spirit of God. Notice again in verse 22, Peter says, Simon, turn from your sin and pray to the Lord that you may be forgiven. But look in verse 23. Simon says, no, Peter, you pray to God for me. Uh, why would he say that? Why, why, why wouldn't he pray to God? Answer? He didn't know God, and God didn't know him. Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. What a sad testimony of this man, Simon Magus. Really a sobering testimony for everyone uh, here who thinks words are enough. Or, or even that belief in the sense of an intellectual assent or common knowledge of Jesus Christ as the Messiah is sufficient for salvation. It's not. But again, texts like these, as sobering as they are, are really a grace from the Lord and a warning for all of us here this morning to say, Am I really saved? Or am I just playing Christian? Am I truly regenerate? Am I truly born again? Or or am I relying completely on that profession that I made in Sunday school when I was five years old? Now, that may very well be the time a person was actually saved and regenerated, but we, we must not depend on a moment in time uh, we have to trust in the promises of God and his word and the work of the, and, and the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which should be more than evident in our lives. I don't know if Simon Magus was a born-again believer. I didn't know the guy. Even if I didn't know him, I couldn't look into his heart. That's not my call to make. I can't look into any of your hearts right now and tell you if you're actually saved or not just like you can't look into my heart and tell me if I'm actually saved. Listen, just because I'm up here preaching a sermon certainly doesn't mean that I'm saved. Mm-hmm. There, there are, thanks. <laughs> got some? You got something to say? <laughs> pay, pay <attention. laughs> good, good for you, brother. There <laughs> there are, there are There are both pews and pulpits full of unregenerate men this morning. This week we'll see um, universities and seminaries full of Old and New Testament scholars who can give you the root meaning of every word in the Hebrew and the Greek and teach a class on hermeneutics, but they're not born again. In the same way, even though you're sitting here, you're listening to a sermon in church right now, I can't look into your heart and tell who's regenerate and who's not. I can't. All I can do is, is faithfully exposit texts like this and exhort you to be absolutely sure and, and treat this as if your life depends on it, because it does. And, and not just your life on earth, but much, but much, much, much more importantly, the life to come. Your eternal life. Uh, Paul himself, writing to the church in Corinth, a church notorious for trusting in their gifts and the prophecies and the miracles and the speaking in tongues, all these outward manifestations, said, examine yourselves. Examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourselves, he says. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Now, I'm not trying to raise suspicion or doubt in the heart of true believers. You can be sure that you're a believer in Christ this morning. You can have full assurance. And a good indication of this is actually that you you care whether or not you're saved. That's a good indication. I'm not trying to raise doubt. I'm just saying when a text like this comes along, it's good to remind ourselves what we're placing our hope in, what we're resting in as it relates to this Christian faith. It's not our goodness. It's not our good works. It's not our heritage. It's not our lineage. It's not because our parents or our grandparents were believers. It's not that we've grown up in church our whole lives. It's not that we give money to the church. It's not that we serve in the church. It's not even our belief. It's not even our faith, and it's certainly not our profession of faith. It's not the card we signed. It's not the aisle we walked. It's not the hand we raised or the water we were dunked in. It's only through the power of Christ within us. The assurance of our salvation through the Word and the Spirit who has made us to be an entirely new creation. Not just a culturally Christian refined or polished form of the old man, not a refurbishing, but a completely new, regenerated, born-again man or woman of God who loves the things that he loves and hates the things that he hates, who, who loves his word and loves his gospel and loves his testimony, who loves his church, who loves his people, who loves his spirit whom we know was only given to us by his sovereign grace alone through faith alone in the shed blood of Jesus Christ alone. That's how we know we're saved. And you can be sure today. I hope that Simon Magus was genuinely converted at some point. I really do. The Lord is as worthy as uh, of his praise as he is of ours this morning. I hope Simon Magus became a believer at some point. But all indications would point to the fact that he needed to once again hear the gospel externally, but and had to have the Spirit of God do a work in his cold, dead, and totally depraved and wicked heart. And I'm not the only one who feels this way. I'm going to read some quotes to close our time, and I want to give full credit to Precept Austin for doing the legwork on putting most of them together here. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Here is a man who was fully satisfied that he was a Christian, and yet the record shows us that he was never a Christian at all. Spurgeon said, Simon the sorcerer, who had bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that he was some great one, professed to believe in Jesus and was even baptized. Yet Peter afterwards had to say to him, Your heart is not right in the sight of God. And alas, both Judas and Simon Magus have many representatives even today. False professors, false converts. Adrian Rogers, Simon believed the miracles, but he did not receive the Lord Jesus. He was like so many today, a miracle monger. He was entranced by the miracles. Rogers says, not all belief is saving belief. And I'm afraid there are thousands in church roles who are counterfeit Christians. They have never committed themselves to the lordship of Christ. This is why we need the sure word of God. Satan is a deceiver. He said, when your life comes to an end and you stand before the Lord, and he asks, why should I let you into heaven? And you say, an angel appeared unto me and told me I was a Christian, Satan will laugh and say, I was that angel. Be careful that you aren't swept away by some devilish manifestation into superstitious faith. That's a great quote. Warren Wearsby believes that Simon's faith was not in the word of God, but in the miracles that he saw Philip perform. There is no indication that Simon repented of his sins. Derek Thomas, Simon Magus, who is said to have believed and yet receives a stinging word of rebuke from Peter that suggests he was never truly converted at all. J. Vernon McGee, I believe that Simon is the first religious racketeer in the church, but unfortunately not the last. He professes to be a believer during the sweeping revival in Samaria under the ministry of Philip. Simon believes he is baptized and becomes a friend of Philip. You would certainly think he was a real child of God. However, he is not converted. C.I. Schofield, in the final chapter of the booklet, Believers and Professors, had this heading. Believers are saved. Mere professors are lost. The first example he gives of a mere pretender and mere professor is Simon Magus. Harry Ironside, we see, Simon, we see in Simon a baptized man, a re- religious professor who had not been regenerated. William MacDonald, it seems that Simon had not been born again. He was a professor, but not a possessor. Finally, the earliest church fathers, men who may have known more about Simon Magus than any extra-biblical authors and commentators, Justin Martyr called Simon Magus the father of all heretics. as tradition sees him going on in the early church, claiming to be equal with God. Irenaeus says he carried out his days in moral failure, including going around antiquity with a prostitute named Helena. Again, these are simply man's words, man's opinion. Only the Lord knows Simon's status. And only the Lord knows the status of your heart, your soul, my heart. In this case, it only makes sense to me that we would give heed to the warning to us in our text this morning that we would truly pray to the Lord to confirm that his spirit dwells on the inside of us. And if not, that we would beg for him to send his spirit into our hearts to, that, that he would regenerate us by his sovereign will alone and by the power of his Holy Spirit alone. I want to send you out of here encouraged. I really do. Uh, don't, let's not forget here, many men and women we're saved. Many, uh, the Lord saved many men and women here. His spirit was poured out on men and women. This is, this is a great thing and we should rejoice and we should praise the Lord for this, amen? And next week, we'll, Lord willing, we'll hear of a true spirit-led, spirit-ordained conversion. We'll look together at the significance of baptism and continue to marvel at uh, the wonders of God's plan of restoration, reconciliation, redemption as his glorious gospel spreads throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Amen? Amen. You- we hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's Word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel.